if there is a central thesis of the book, it is that we focus all too much on what I call uh, subjective violence. Our next ethical step is to learn to be, to accept, to be responsible even for this objective violence. We cannot say, sorry, it's objective, what can I do? In a way, we are responsible for it. I'm well aware that I should have introduced many more refined, explicit distinctions which are in the background, somehow presupposed. So although the book may appear popular, it presupposes something. For example, elementary distinction between power and violence, or power in the sense of authority. Usually people say, oh, it's authoritarian violence, but no, through authority precisely does not need violence, as Hannah Arendt put it. Violence is usually the arm of the impotent. I mean, at the most elementary level, this can be rendered clear, like imagine a family. Isn't it true that even if it is painful, if a father beats you, Physically, physical violence. There is always something slightly ridiculous, impotent about it. A father who is a true authority, he just looks at you. It's just the threat of violence. Threat is enough. But, so, again, there, but against this background, I want to state that I use the term violence in a more general way. I consciously opted for this more blurred, non-specific way of whatever is experienced as a violent intrusion, violent measured by some neutral standard. And it is here that my questions and worries begin. If there is a central thesis of the book, it is that we focus all too much on what I call uh, subjective violence. By this, I don't mean, as some people who reviewed my book complain, subjective in the sense of not real, just experience. No, it can be very real, but by subjective violence, I mean violence which is not just anonymous, anonymous like an objective social process, but where you have a clear sub subject, agent, who did it. It can be a mob, it can be a singular cr criminal, it can be a terrorizing parent, it can be secret police army, but you know who did it. What interests me is that this kind of violence, subjective violence, is what we read in the media all the time. But what interests me is violence which is invisible systemic, which goes on, but we don't even notice it as violence because... What we notice as violence is a disturbance of the established order. But my question is, what about violence which has to go on, not so that 
the normal run of the things is disturbed. But so that things go on like normal. That invisible violence. Here, for example, to give you an example, I'm pretty much in sympathy with the last book by Naomi Klein. I think it's shock capitalism, shock doctrine. Not that I agree with all her peculiar analysis, but I think the focus is the right one. How? Capitalism, liberal capitalism, is presented by the big media to us as a means to bring non-violent development and so on. So either you have violent totalitarian regimes or you do it peacefully. But her point is precisely that in order to establish conditions for free market and in order to sustain free market, you need quite a lot of violence. There she is convincing. So these forms of violence interest me. This, which is why, to give you another example, it's so simply to play because it's more subjective violence to play the game of who is responsible for communist crimes. There, things are clear. You can say it's Stalin, Communist Party, and then we can play all this game of origins. Was it only Stalin? Was it already Lenin? Was it already Marx? Was it already Rousseau? Was it already Christianity? Was it already Plato? Then we can play this game from Plato to NATO, no one big line. But capitalist violence is much more anonymous. It's just in the system. And... So you cannot even say who is guilty. Just people experience it as a kind of a pseudo-natural catastrophe. Isn't, isn't a big economic crisis where, for example, thousands of small shareholders lose everything they have, thousand people get, get unemployed, isn't this something which is experienced like kind of a political tsunami? It just happens, nobody is responsible, and I think that's the underlying thesis of the book, that to put it in somewhat bombastic terms, if humanity is to survive confronting all the crises we have today, the threat of ecological crisis, the threat of social violence provoked by new forms of apartheid, on the one hand gated communities, on the other hand people living in excluded areas, slums, favelas and so on, our next ethical step is to learn to be to accept to be responsible even for this objective violence. We cannot say, sorry, it's objective, what can I do? In a way, we are responsible for it. This is if there is one thesis of the book. Yes, of course, it's horrible, subjective violence, but the thing to do is to get the whole picture as a rule. Subjective violence is a response to objective violence. Let's take so-called terrorism. Of course, what is in the background is the, the way world capitalism in its global dimension interrupted the normal run of the thing in these countries. Now, let me avoid a misunderstanding here. My point is not to allow then those who perpetrate subjective violence to say, oh, so we are just a reaction, so capitalism is to be blamed for everything. No, no, no. They should be punished, whatever. No problem there. Just we should get the entire picture. The clearest example that I quote in my book is this subjective violence at its irrational purest. Like what happened uh, two years ago, I think, and already last year, a little bit, this car burnings in the suburbs of Paris. This was a much more mysterious phenomenon than it may appear, because it wasn't as even some French commentators thought a reaction to certain, uh, 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 to certain forms of exploitation, exclusion, 
And it wasn't, especially it wasn't a Muslim fundamentalist reaction. My God, these young guys there, the first thing they burned were their local mosques, usually, and so on. So it was an example of what in the book I call, ironically with the linguistic term, fatic communication, where it's not a message, it's just to establish the link. It was their way of saying, hi, we are here, we want to be visible, which is why the liberal counter-argument, okay, we got your point, but couldn't you just do a peaceful protest, doesn't work. In that way, nobody would notice them. And so uh, this is where I think one should complicate the picture. The last, most radical, maybe, thesis of the book is that we live in an era where violence is the big taboo. Like, you know, the whole point about political correctness, harassment, is that the threshold of violence is getting higher and higher in the sense of things which 50 years ago or even less would be perceived as maybe tasteless but normal are today violence. I don't know a tragicomic example which happened to me in the United States. I look you into the eyes, a uh, uh, visual rape or whatever. No, that What fascinated me is how this much higher sensitivity to these forms of subjective intrusion violence goes hand in hand with much more brutal forms of objective violence or even social violence. The paradox for me is that this extreme sensitivity to subjective violence is a very dangerous ideological phenomenon, something which goes hand in hand with even enhanced social violence. This is a reference to uh, this is a reference to uh, to uh, Walter Benjamin, his opposition between mythic violence and divine violence. Mythic violence is what usually we would have designated as divine violence. It's a violence constitutive of power or violence uh, violence exerted on behalf of God. So when people told me, "Oh, so you mean?" fundamentalist terrorist. I said, no, exactly the opposite. They are mythic violence. It's a violence perpetrated on behalf of God, in the sense of, in what sense? Here I like to quote that uh, well-known uh, motto from Dostoevsky, his brother Skaramazov, no, if there is no God, everything is permitted. My theoretical point of reference, Jacques Lacan, was quite right in turning this around. His point is, no, if God doesn't exist, then Everything is prohibited, which, incidentally, a quick look at today's hedonists, like, I don't know, go to gay community in, in Chelsea in New York. You will see that these people who dedicate their life to pleasures live in a total superego terror. You know, am I eating healthy, am I, and so on and so on. But what's more important is to take into account the opposite statement, which is also true. It's not if... God exists, then many things are prohibited. It's if God exists, then everything is permitted, namely for you insofar as you occupy the position of an instrument of God. Who can argue with you if you are dead? So I will try to give as brief indication as possible what do I mean by divine violence. First, let's be clear. Every system of power, every exercise of power, 
no matter how, uh, how democratic, democratically legitimized it is, always has an excess. Let's be clear. The message of every state power is always, okay, okay, uh, l uh, limitations of power, democratic representation, but ultimately, there is always this unspoken threat of, ultimately, I can do with you whatever I want. And I'm not saying this is some kind of a dark totalitarianism. I claim this is constitutive of power, political power as such. It doesn't function. You have power or not. It doesn't function with you know, limited power. There must be this threat. And what I'm tempted to claim, divine violence is for me a kind of a democratic, popular counter-movement. That at a certain point, you can also unconditionally explode. It's something which is divine in the sense, more in the Kierkegaardian sense, where Kierkegaard uh, opposes, as we all know, ethical stage to religious stage. In the ethical stage, you are bound by universal norms. In religious stage, his model is, of course, Abraham ordered to kill his son Isaac. You do something which is, in a way, beyond morality. You obviously violate ethical norms, but nonetheless it's not simple criminality. And my idea is when oppressed people rebel, when you have this moment of rebellion, of course it's not ethical. In a certain way you do violate rules. Innocent people get lost. So I'm not saying that they are simply... What I'm saying is that nonetheless, in a way, if it's true popular rebellion or resistance, whatever, you don't have the right to condemn them. Because it's this kind of a, a priori justified reaction against the excess of violence. So I think that we, that's the maybe dangerous for some people thesis, that we have to accept this kind of emancipatory violence. Now, I'm not saying we need the old political terror in no way, because the interesting thing in all political terrors, dictatorship. It's precisely how the original moment of divine violence, popular violence, shifts then into a new form of mythical violence. For example, in, if you look, I didn't have time to, I mean, there wasn't enough space, the editor was very strict to include this into the book, but how, I always like cinema examples, take the work of the one and the same guy, uh, Sergei Eisenstein, the great Soviet classic. In his early silent films, you have wonderful moments of divine violence. For example, in his October. No, no people are, but just how, when the workers penetrate the Winter Palace, they enter the basement where there are thousands of bottles of champagne and they just smash everything. I know people, when I watched the movie, cried, like, my God, all that precious drink. This kind of explosion. Then, later, in his Ivan the Terrible, Eisenstein diagnosed the shift from this divine violence to mythic violence, all this legitimization of Stalinist purges and so on, totally different uh, violence. So, my point simply is, let's not demonize violence. In order because, precisely because the zero-level normal state of things already involved, involves violence. To get rid of it, you need violence. But, of course, not any violence. Like, to give you an example, just to dispel the scare that 
somewhere in the back of my mind, I want to impose on you or on the public a new form of terror. You know who is for me a nice example of divine violence? Gandhi. Non-violence. Of course, he was for non-violence. I'm also in the sense of don't kill people. But wait a minute. What he was organizing in India in the 30s and so on was definitely not only protest. These were, with regard to the institutional structure of the British colonial state, these were very violent acts in the sense that, you know, through all those tax evading, boycotting and so on, he wanted very brutally to prevent the normal functioning of the English state. So when people ask me, I hope this will dispel their fears, where do I see divine violence, for example, I would say Gandhi. Look at Gandhi. We tend to forget this today, the violent aspect. This maybe would be another nice example how ideology works today. Many phenomena which were perceived in a quite different way in their own era are today integrated in our collective ideology, but in a very watered-down way. For example, now that we were celebrating, I think recently, uh, uh, 40 years of death of Martin Luther King. There were some wonderful comments in American leftist newspapers where they pointed out that, as one of them, I think Henry Louis Taylor, put it, every stupid American schoolchild knows, you know, that I have a dream speech, that Martin Luther had a dream. Then he went on, wonderfully, this guy, but nobody of us knows what the dream was. It wasn't what we think, oh, racial equality. No. This was 63, 64 the high point of popularity when Martin Luther King was received in the White House, but then he moved way to the left. He said, no, race is not the key struggle, it's economic justice. When he was killed in Memphis, Tennessee, he went there not to fight for racial equality, but to support striking workers of all colors and so on. That aspect of Luther King disappeared. So, you see, this is for me enacted violence, the third type that I mentioned in the book, uh, symbolic violence. I mean, where is violence? As I speculate a little bit, referring to Martin Heidegger, who is, for some people, very problematic. I think he's nonetheless a great philosopher. There is a certain violence in language as such, not only at the level well analyzed by different philosophers, sociologists, and linguists, so-called symbolic violence in the sense of how, even if we act as if we have an equal communication. Language itself embodies certain forms of patronizing, domination, and so on. This is a wonderful field of analysis of how, even if explicitly I'm giving you a free choice respecting your autonomy, the very way I do it undermines it. But, uh, sorry, just to finish, but I claim that there is a more radical violence in the sense of, insofar as language determines the global horizon of how I experienced reality. It's always a very one-sided view. It, for example, where is here violence? Let's say I live in the same block with one guy from Latin America, another guy from Arab countries, another guy from Far East Asia. We can talk about same things. For example, we talk about gold. But gold can mean totally different things to us. And it's really a battle of our state, democracy, art. We may use the same word, but who wins there? It's violence. It's violence. We, we in language, are never at the level of just equal mirror 
communication, dialogue. Every dialogue presupposes a certain field. Which field of communication is hegemonic is violence. And people are becoming more and more aware of it. I think these are the true problems of multiculturalism. Of course, in principle, everybody is for multiculturalism, religious tolerance, and so on. But like the very terms in which you formulated it always include a certain form of violence. Violence in the sense of that something is imposed on you. It can be a superficially polite way, but it's really... Sometimes even the most polite it is, the more brutal it really is. Ah, here, if I may disagree in a friendly way, yes, you can say at a certain level, text theory no longer apply, but I think it applies even more, because what you see in such conflictual situations, for example, it's clear when a Western individualist liberal and an Islamist, I'm not talking about dark fundamentalists, but those who try to present themselves as open Islamists, when they debate, although they, again, use the same words, they both would agree we want a tolerant, open society. It's clear that they are speaking about different things. So here we need more than ever, of course not abstract theory, but we have to move at a higher reflexive level, level. not to bring peace, but even to make it clear where is the difference. I mean, often when I read these debates, you know, for example, you know it better than me, all that scandal which exploded after Rowan Williams made that statement about the necessity to incorporate some parts of Sharia law into the British judicial system. What shocked me is it was clear not only that there is a difference, but that there, how to put it speculatively, there was a difference in the very way how the difference was perceived. It wasn't that one and the different sides were just thinking they perceived in a totally different way the very difference. For English liberals, it was us against the threat of this close totalitarian Muslim. For Muslims, it was something totally different. It was Western liberals trying to ruin their way of life and so on and so on. So now what I will say now may surprise you. I think, now I think that here, I warn you, the thesis that I will advocate now brought me many troubles with my multiculturalist leftist friends. Uh, I am all fully aware of all the, how should I call it, racist undercurrents, twists which pertain to liberal position. I accept all that. But my basic, maybe a little bit pessimist insight is the following one. It's almost a little bit a tragic conclusion. Two points. The first point I don't think that simple, pure multiculturalism is possible. The right-wingers, not so much in England, maybe also here, but in Germany, for example, I think I mentioned this in the book, my book on violence, how they had the debate on so-called light culture, leading predominant culture. I think they had a point there, because it's not enough to say, you live in your culture, I live in my culture or faith or whatever, and then all we need is some kind of a neutral legal space to regulate how we tolerate each other. It doesn't work at that level. If multiculturalism is really to thrive, we need a kind of a deeper 
or maybe even deeper is the wrong word, maybe it's even better to say superficial, a set of shared values of not so much tolerance in the usual sense, but how I respect you and so on, which we all share. So when conservatives claim, nonetheless, we need to have our culture, our values, I would say, yes, let's fight for those values. So let's not leave too easily the terrain to the enemy. I think this is the lesson the left has to learn. We should try to build our own consensus of I don't like the term values. I would rather say everyday customs. I like this term. Customs. Rules of how you treat, how we treat each other decently. Although I disagree with him politically. He was way too soft for me. But here, already in the 30s, late 30s, George Orwell said some wonderful things. I think we should take it very seriously about this everyday decency, customs. If this disintegrates things simply, things fall apart. Here I see the danger of so-called political correctness. I know it's often mocked, criticized in a wrong way. Basically, of course, it's a positive phenomenon. My God, the problems that political correctness attacks are the true problems, racism, sexism, and so on. But the problem is that what political correctness is dealing with are precisely things which can truly be resolved, I claim, only at the level of customs, civility, and so on. What political correctness tends to do is to directly, explicitly normativize them, formulate the explicit rules, or even penalize, legalize them. When you do this, it's unfortunately counterproductive, I think. You know what I mean? Like, let's say we are from totally different cultures. I mean... You concede defeat in advance. You introduce a universe of total guilt if, you know, I have to set, follow the rules of how am I allowed to address you and so on. This is for me what is bad about liberalism. Liberals like to feel guilty, you know. Oh, I didn't reflect enough. Maybe by treating you kindly, I was still committing some sin of... So it doesn't work in this way. Let me give you... So it's my nature coming from ex-Yugoslavia, Balkan, to be a little bit obscene, but decently obscene for the media. I read somewhere that in a college in Northwest United States, this is the, the politically correct territory, they did something interesting towards which I'm simply sympathetic. They established in an apparently purely politically correct way explicit rules of seduction. And they put it on Paper, points, like the basic rule being for every step you have to ask permission explicitly. Like, can I now unbutton your shirt? Can I put my hand on your breast? And so on and so on. Uh, It worked, but I'll tell you why. Not because it worked literally, but because in real life, people eroticized these rules themselves. You know, used them ironically and so on. Here you see it worked, but because of customs. That immediately... If they were to work immediately, it would have been ridiculous, humiliating. I hope oh, even you, sorry, to be, I like to be tasteless, friend, if somebody were try to seduce you, isn't it that you would say, no, I don't want you to follow rules. I want you to seduce me in a decent way, simply in a decent way. You know what I mean? So that simply it must be as it were in your nature that you do. You know, I don't want you to, uh, can I do this? Uh, you know what I mean? This is a nice example of what I'm aiming at. We should be always 
more and more aware of how the true problem is this social trust set of organic value. Because if we talk about even about democracy, that's where I see a threat of democracy with what is happening today, the growth of these separate, uh, uh, not only gated, gated communities, but different ways of life and so on. Let's be clear, and Orwell was right here, if we don't have, I don't like the word patriotic, but some kind of what he meant by patriotic, larger encompassing community identification, if our global community, a nation, is just a legal space for different ways of life to compete, you don't have a democracy, I claim. You must have this more of a pathetic identification. And again, instead of rejecting this as, oh, you want organic unity, you are proto-fascist or what? No, we left should accept this and say, no, we should fight for what are these values. I mean, when conservatives try to emphasize, I was told now it's one of the, their phrases is against this pure multiculturalism, Britishness, no? Okay, they have Britishness, we can invent something better. Maybe even a different, call it Britishness, whatever you want, I don't care. But let's not leave the terrain to the, to the, to the enemy. So here I see the problem, uh, the problem with this uh, totally, uh, how should I put it, totally permissive attitude of, to put it radically, that every imposition of some universal shared values is seen as kind of a racist privileging of one culture. No, it's the only medium where multiculturalism can, can thrive. So, again, we should accept this. The other point I want to make along these same lines is, this is why I don't like the word tolerance. It's not enough. What does tolerance mean? It's, I think, an ideological category. And I use here ideology almost in the old-fashioned Marxist way of false consciousness mystification. What is ideology? Ideology is not simply, instead of the real problems, we deal with pseudo-problems. Ideology deals with very real problems, but it mystifies them. The very so that's, for me, the big lesson today. That's what we philosophers can do. I cannot propose you how to solve racist problem, how to solve ecological problem. What I can do as a philosopher is, I hope so, show how the very way you perceive, you conceptualize a very real problem may be part of the problem. So, and for me, nice example is tolerance. It's true. Tolerance deals with very real problems. Sexism, racism, ethnic religious intolerance. But are these Problems, really, automatically problems of tolerance. Let's take racism. I made a simple test, above-mentioned guy, Martin Luther King. Go to internet, Google him, and put search tolerance. A word is practically absent from his work. For him, racism was not a problem of tolerance. For him to say, we blacks need more tolerance from the whites, it would be humiliating, ridiculous. It's the same as, I hope you are, a good feminist. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for you to say, we women want more tolerance from men? My God, this is ridiculous. No. Racism was for Martin Luther King a problem of economic exploitation, legal rights, uh, and so on and so on. So it's not an innocent thing that today we perceive racism automatically as a problem of tolerance. I think this is part of our what I call in that book, and I developed this more in 
other of my books, Post-Political Society, where social political life or state rule is more and more reduced to rational administration, like we don't debate about economy, as Peter Mendelssohn put it nicely two, three years ago. Of course, I disagree with it, but the formulas were, he said, let's admit it, we are all Thatcherites in economy. So the only thing we can do is, you know, when I was young, we were still dreaming about socialism with a human face. His point was, all we can do is global capitalism with a human face. Now we change a little bit, more tolerant laws, more rights to this, that, more social security, but you accept the rules of the game. In this state of things, all conflicts are politically neutralized. They are no longer perceived as political-economic conflicts. They are restated as cultural conflicts. In this sense, they are naturalized. And of course, with cultures, different ways of life, all you can do is tolerate. The resolution of the conflict is not, I will make you disappear or you will kill me, but let's tolerate. A nice example is here in Mexico, I read, how Mexican poor farmers, uh, they try to formulate their fight as exploitation of poor farmers. Nobody was interested, you know, the moment you complain in this way, there is always some neoliberal guy who says, yes, but sorry, this that's a nice word. Structural readjustments are necessary. They did something intelligent as a manipulation. They reformulated their struggle as the struggle of the cultural struggle of indigenous people against uh, Spanish cultural imperialism. All of a sudden, they became much more popular. A nice example, but I think for me, a rather sad example of how to be hurt at all, you have to culturalize your your. Uh, your predicament, no? So this is my problem of tolerance. The second problem I have with tolerance is that precisely because of this, tolerance often, I claim, in some of our ultra-developed societies, works as a name for its opposite. In what sense? What does it effectively mean, for example, in the United States, even here up to point today, tolerance? It means don't harass me. The opposite of tolerance, a name for intolerance, is harassment. Okay. What does it mean, harassment? Again, the same ideological twist. It's very real thing, harassment. Of course, there is harassment. There is rape and whatever, and my God, I'm a madman here. I mean, I advocate death penalty for rapists. I'm one of the few people that I know who are for death penalty. So I'm not down. What I'm just saying is that there is also another dimension in harassment, which is this typically late capitalist subjectivity, fear of the proximity of the other. You know, what I mentioned before, you come too close to me, you are invading my space. You talk to me dirty, you are verbally raping me, or rather, I, you, or whatever. So what I'm saying is that, isn't this a nice example of how the same term, harassment, covers a real problem, but attached to it, to mystify it, it's a whole set of ideology of not invade my space, distance. So I claim paradoxically that what we mean by tolerance today is Avoid harassment, which means I don't tolerate your proximity. Tolerance means de facto stay far away enough for me, which is why tolerance can well work also in a much more suspicious upper class way. Like tolerance, tolerance can also mean like I like poor people, but they should stay there, Hashtafuti, don't come too close, and so on and so on. No? So uh, this is my problem with tolerance. Another problem I have with tolerance is that it usually is combined with this plea for understanding. The ideology of tolerance that I really hate can be best condensed in one motto. 
and here I have really a Joseph Goebbels reaction. I draw my gun. It's that famous multiculturalist motto, an enemy is someone whose story you did not hear. Start shooting. Why? It sounds very noble, no? You are my enemy insofar as I objectivize you, but I should give you a chance, try to hear your side of the story from within, as it were, and then I see you are human like me, you have your dreams, your desires, Okay, okay, sounds nice. Up to a certain level, it works. But, but, yeah, 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 yeah. Just replace it with Hitler, no? And it's totally... So, but I go here further now. It's not only that your insights, stories you are telling about yourself are, are a lie. But I think this very idea, this pressure of, I have to understand you in order to be open to you, it's false. It's, again, an impossible liberal blackmail. I know I will never understand you, so we all feel guilty all the time. No, I'm here absolutely misanthropic. I don't want to understand people. I think 95% of the people are stupid idiots. I don't want to. I'm not interested in them. The true problem of racism is not I should know your inner life to be... No, the problem, the true problem of multiculturalism is you are Indian, I'm Arab, he's Latin American. We live in the same block. How can we be decent respectful to each other without this shitty understanding coming to it. No, that's the actual problem. It's, it's totally wrong to put it in this encompassing understanding. So I, here I quote it in the book. I quite agree with it. Otherwise, I am totally opposed to him. Peter Sloterdijk. I mean, let's, not, let's avoid a misunderstanding. If I take power, he goes to Gulag immediately. But he made a nice point when he said, we don't need more understanding. We need a new code of discretion. How, you know, I don't try to understand. There is something very violent and at the same time I claim patronizing in understanding. For me, you know who is your greatest racist? I mean, it's sympathetic to watch him, but this pure racist patronizing understanding. The uh, Monty Python guy who does all these travelogues, Michael Palin. Is this, you know, with this ironic smile, he comes, you can see the patronizing, amused humor and so on. That, that's what one has to avoid. I mean, that's what one has to avoid. But that's where I see the tragedy. Again, this disappearance of general, as it were, politics and reducing everything to particular issues. This is, for me, the key aspect or form of appearance of, of post-politics. And I think, that's the whole point of the book towards the end, that we are now confronting problems which, like ecology, I don't think you can solve it treating it as a special issue. It's a global issue. It concerns us all radically, our very survival. So, and also other issues, like the issue of those excluded in favelas. I have a whole series of these issues where I think that this typically postmodern late capitalist politic of single issues, when then you can build all possible coalitions and so on, I think that if there is a lesson from the today's decade, it's that that is not enough. So if people ask me what would be for you the historical meaning of September 11th, we all know it wasn't really such a, like, Every week, 
10,000, sorry, 10 times more children die in Congo than did there. But if there is a historical meaning to September 11th, it is precisely that that multiculturalist utopia of the Clinton 90s. We can do everything with this issues, politics, that we are at the end of that. We need to rehabilitate global politics. By global politics, I mean politics which is global in the sense that it is political in this radical sense, engaging all your being, not just one issue. And point two, also global in the sense that it's universal in its targeting, all humanity ultimately, but even in a more radical third sense, uh, global in the sense that I think that we should rehabilitate the notion of large collective acts. The big victim of the defeat of socialism and social democratic wealth state were these large collective acts. The idea is the moment you propose a big political collective act, it was said, didn't you learn the lesson? Ah, do you want gulag or what? No. So the fashionable terms were... Uh, micromanagement, interaction, uh, nomadic, uh, autopoetic, like let the particular agents interact and the global dimension will arise autopoetically as a kind of, how do they call it, emergent property. We cannot rely on that. I mean, it's even clear to those in power. This is why all this pressure for Kyoto Agreement and so on. Obviously, we did not yet learn the lesson, because with the last negotiations, where were they? In Bali, I think. No? It was praised as a success, but what they agreed is that they will continue to meet, has to put it. It's, it's really, it's very interesting ideological phenomenon, this, how we all know it's really an example of what in psychoanalysis we call fetishist split. Je sais bien, mais quand même. I know very well, but. We know very well how serious things are, but we cannot, we cannot act. It's a very interesting ideological phenomenon. I was often attacked for using that metaphor that I perceive myself as a magician, presenting you every time a new hat, but there is never a big fat rabbit that I would pull out. No, because I think that the problem is much more radical than it may appear. Let's be clear. I'm radically a leftist. I buy everything up to a certain amount of divine violence and so on. But the problem is elsewhere. The problem is, does a left really have a global alternate vision to offer. Look at the, the only bright hope, which was the Porto Alegre movement. It's slowly dying away. Why? Precisely because there was no positive vision. All that was was a protest movement where they were all together, from conservative ecologists to, to those who religiously, because it's sinful, opposed capitalism, to communists, radical leftists, anarchists, whatever you want. Of course, they all agreed, and some people even celebrated this as postmodern, non-hierarchic movement. Yeah, it worked because it was a pure protest movement. The moment you try to oppose to it a positive project, uh, it didn't work. So, here is my position. I see a whole series of... Okay, I'll put it in this way, my position is. That the only ultimate choice today is, was Fukuyama right or not? It's easy to make fun of Fukuyama's thesis on the end of history. That is to say, his thesis that 
ultimately we found a formula. Liberal capitalism with democratic rights and so on. It's easy to make fun of him. Like, oh, that idiot who thought history is at an end. But let's be frank. Aren't we all, inclusive of the 99% of today's left, aren't we all, how should I put it, Fukuyamaists? Isn't it that we all look at what the left is debating? Nobody debates these old big questions. Is capitalism here to stay? Do we need a state? No, this is all accepted. The point is just, as I said before, how to make it a little bit better. More tolerance, more this, more that. So that's my big question. My answer is, unfortunately, no. No in the sense that, no, it will not work. There are a whole series of problems where I think that they have a strong enough antagonistic potential that it will not be able in the long term to save them, to resolve them, to live with them within the context of global capitalism. Again, ecology, problems of biogenetics, interestingly enough, he's a conservative but an honest, intelligent one. Fukuyama himself, in his later book on human in human future, whatever, had to admit this, that the very fact of biogenetic manipulations complicates everything and introduces history again, makes unworkable his old thesis on the end of history. Then in capitalism, intellectual, the problem of intellectual properties, it's clear that so-called intellectual properties, how to put it, don't fit the form of private property. It's a constant tension how to translate them into private property. And then the mega problem, new slums, favelas, new gated apartheid, and so on. So what I see is the following, that here problems are arising. And I'm not anti-capitalist in the naive sense you know, those who try to convince you, apparently we live well, but there are millions suffering, really. This is the high masochist pleasure of pseudo-leftists. They try to convince you how you think you are living well, but you are not aware that it's worse than ever. You know, like when I was young, there were crazies who said, okay, in East they may have gulags, but isn't our consumerist society one mega gulag? My God. I would really wish that guy to spend one week in the real gulag. No, but, so again, we have to give the devil what belongs to the devil. Let's be frank. Now, I will say something horrible for leftists. In spite of all, of course, it's exploitation of third world and so on. But nonetheless, isn't it that if you take Western Europe for the last 50 years, can you honestly say that there was, maybe there was, but very little, any period in the history of humanity where such a large number of people lived in comparable freedom, safety, and so on. My problem is not to fight this. My problem is that it cannot last. We see how welfare state is socially, sorry, it's gradually being dismantled. We see. That's my problem with torture. I'm a realist here. I'm not hypocritical. I know in other countries they torture probably much more than the United States. The true scandal is for me the appearance. How is it that we can all of a sudden publicly talk about torture. This is for me a kind of ethical fiasco. I believe in appearances, decency appearances. I'm for hypocrisy at this level. Pretend, you know, uh, uh, how would it, act it till you make it, or how did they put it, alcoholic anonymous. Pret fa no, fake it till you make it, no? So, uh, what I fear, we should counteract not what capitalism is today, but where it is moving. That is to say, I read all these signs, torture, newgated communities, ecological problems, as signs that in the long term, capitalism the way we know it today in the developed countries, with its relative 
good sites. Not to mention the mega problem of what, what does it mean for third world countries. This makes even more argument for me. That it moves in a direction where it will undermine itself. So we should counteract that. The choice is either we let it drift and then we will all of a sudden end in some kind of a new, very exclusive uh, authoritarian apartheid society, or we will, we will be literally pushed to invent something new. It will be a question of survival with dignity. The choice will be not between our liberal democratic capitalism and some idealized communist future. I'm not naive. The choice will be the choice to come between what this capitalism will develop into if we don't act against and something we will have to invent. Now, there are signs what this may be, but no, I'm here an honest, honest, not pessimist, but honestly ignorant. I'm not saying I have that model, certainly not, as some people accuse me, that I believe that some old-fashioned Leninist party will arise again. I think that's, don't you think that's even at the common level of theoretical decency, the duty of intellectuals today, to make people aware that we still have to think radically. By this I mean not imposing onto reality some crazy, crazy utopias, but simply to make them aware that maybe what we have now, globally as a system, is not the final answer. Here I see the legacy of, since we are now two months from it, of May 68. No? It's not, for me, there is, May 68 is for me an ambiguous phenomenon. There is one aspect of May 68, which I hate, which was easily appropriated into ruling ideology. May 68 as creativity, explosion of sexual freedom and so on, so-called postmodern capitalism can perfectly integrate this. We are all hedonists today and so on. But there is another May 68, which, for example, signaled by facts which are totally forgotten today, like workers, sorry, uh, students demonstrating joint workers and so on. And then, behind all this, the basic question of 68 was not academic freedom student, but was a kind of a vague insight that the global capitalist system we have is not enough. That's the legacy of 68. That's the legacy, not these shitty freedoms or whatever. That's where I see the problem. So again, I'm much more modest here. I'm not a crazy radical who says we need a total communist revolution. I'm just saying the game we are playing today, our global system, cannot go on forever. And we have to keep our minds open. <laughs>